1 Thessalonians, we just started this book. We are in chapter 1, looking at verse 2 and 3 today. And, you know, you have those certain moments in time when you hear a sermon and it stays with you for life. Years ago, back, uh, I don't know, probably in my early 20s, I heard Chuck speak on this very passage. And uh, it's never left me. And so I, I went back and listened to it this week on uh, YouTube, and it was equally as wonderful. And so I hope this is one of those memorial moments in time that God grounds your heart in the truth as well. Well, as you remembered last time, Paul, on his second missionary journey, goes through what is Turkey today, Asia Minor, and God says, no, you can't go to Bithynia. No, you can't go to Galatia area. All these various, and he finally hits the ocean there. And in Troas, God says, hey, there's a guy on the other side of the Aegean Sea, over which Europe now, Greece, who is calling for somebody to come and witness. Of course, he gets over there as a group of Jewish women, but I think if there was a group of women calling Paul, he probably wouldn't have gone. But he gets there, and down by the river is a Jewish group. He preaches, and, and then it begins to do a wonderful work in Philippi. But you guys remember what happened in Philippi? Paul got arrested, thrown in prison, beaten with rods, down in the dungeon. Him and uh, Silas began to praise the Lord, and the place shaked, and all the prison doors opened, and the handcuffs or whatever fell off. And, and, and there he preached to the Philippian jailer, and he received the Lord. And uh, they said, well, get out of town, since you're a Roman citizen. We didn't know that. We wouldn't have beat you if, had we known that. And he goes, and he ends up in Thessalonica. But he gets there, and these guys eventually find him, track him down 100 miles away. And he's got to leave Thessalonica as well. Um, today, if you look it up, it may be a little bit different because it'll say Thessaloniki, um, which is the original name of it. It was the sister of Alexander the Great. So somebody figuring out how to shut their phone off? There we go. You old people. Oh, us old people. I forgot. Um, last week we looked at 1 Thessalonians 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, Silvanus, Timothy, to the church of Thessalonians, to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We had a wonderful time last week looking at the grace and the peace of God. The peace that passes all understanding comes when you're grounded in the grace, growing in the grace, strong in the grace. Well, today we come to verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Now, I think that's more honest. Because often people say, well, pray for me. And, and you say, yeah, I will. And you don't. And, and Paul says here, I make mention of you <laughs> as you come to mind. And I think that's just more honest. When people ask me to pray for them, I do it on the spot. Or if, if it doesn't work out, I immediately, when I hang up the phone or whatever, I pray for them. Or if I get an email, uh, I'll just pray for them at the moment. And then ask the Lord, here I am, which is called intercession. 
Intercession is where the Holy Spirit brings people to mind. Boy, as a kid, I read a lot of missionary books, and, and I heard so many amazing stories where people in one side of the world begin to pray, waking up out of the sleep at 2 in the morning, and pray and pray for hours for not knowing what's going on on the other side of the planet with the missionaries, but praying for them. And, and then to find out days or weeks later that at that very moment, um, they were in a, a, a very difficult situation. But then to find out other Christians also were awakened at the same time and begin to pray. I, I love those stories of, of that life in the spirit, openness in the spirit. And God can just turn us to the right, to the left, waken us, cause our hearts to be stirred, to seek him. And, and then he says, we, plural, we, we mention you. And it's in the present, which the present tense, which is inferring a continuous action. So I may not think of you, but, but Timothy or Silas says, one of us are always having you guys come to mind and praying for you. And we see Paul saying the same thing in Romans 1.9, Ephesians 1.16, and Philemon 1.4, the exact same wordage. And of course, we're going to get to the last chapter of this book someday, um, and uh, Paul says they're praying without ceasing. So we really get that insight. And then, of course, in 1 Corinthians 14, or he says, I, I pray with my mind, and then I pray when my mind's unfruitful. What does he mean by that? That sometimes as he's praying without ceasing, his spirit's groaning within him, and the Holy Spirit is praying things that he's not even aware of with a language that the Spirit speaks. But for him, it's just a groaning, a stirring in his spirit. Have you ever had that? I've had that numerous times, especially my kids coming to mind where I, I, I don't know how to pray for them. I, my brain, my mind, I'm busy, but I just sort of groan for them, asking God's Spirit to fall on them. I think that's what my groaning means. And uh, to help them, protect them, put hedges around about them, and keep them. And so Paul had this wonderful life of praying in the Spirit, groaning, as he says in Romans, in the Spirit, praying in the perfect will of God when his mind's unfruitful. But then as they come to mind, giving himself, as he says in 1 Timothy 2, prayers and supplications and thanksgivings in his prayer life. Now, Paul is getting ready to say that he has great joy in remembering them. And, and you say, well, it's because they were such a morally impeccable group of people. No, that wasn't the case. Matter of fact, when we get to chapter 4, he has to remind them that God's called them to cleanness, not to uncleanness. Because in that pagan Roman society, the worship of the various gods usually had prostitutes in the temple and you go and, and pay money to them. This, is, this was a, a very difficult thing for them. And it wasn't that they had perfect doctrine. He was only, remember there, only three Sabbath days, four weeks at the most. Now, this is what's going to be amazing. When we get through this book, like in chapter 2, Paul says, you know perfectly well. And then he talks about the end times, the coming of the Antichrist, uh, the tribulation period, the rapture. It's like three Sabbath days, maybe four weeks at the most, and you got all of that in? 
it's like, wow. I mean, a lot of Christians don't get to that until they've been a Christian 10 years. Uh, but they got into that within three weeks. But why did Paul rejoice in them? Well, he's going to tell us now in verse 3. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and in the sight of God our Savior. So Paul is writing, this is his first epistle. And we are going to see him mention this holy triad, faith, hope, and love, these three. But it's interesting that he often just mentions them, like in 1 Corinthians 13, right? These three, faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. But here, he, he, he qualifies them. And, he, and it's rather interesting because the qualifiers he puts with them is not what you would expect. And, and, and he says here, a work of faith. Now that causes a lot of people to think controversially because they're thinking, hmm, wow, that's, I, I thought salvation was free. But now you're saying that faith, salvation by faith actually has works with it? Well, the word here in the Greek for work is ergon, and it is the word that means toil, labor. That as you're walking in faith, you're working at walking in faith. Now, again, if you're familiar, there's a big controversy between Romans and James because Paul is emphatic that we are saved without works, only by faith alone. And then James, a much later book, comes along and says, well, faith without works is dead. And Martin Luther, who really taught us salvation by faith alone and the grace of God alone, and brought all Christendom eventually worldwide out of the dark ages with that truth, he ripped the book of James out of his Bible. But <laughs> the last 10 years he was alive, he put it back in. And he even taught it realizing, yeah, they don't contradict each other at all. They really fit as a puzzle very well together. Over this point, that faith has action in it. You, you think about it. If you believe in the Lord or receive the Lord or trust in the Lord, any of those words will work. In and of itself, it's an action, right? And, and you know what also is in believing and receiving, trusting in the Lord? You know what else? A submission. Because you believe he is Lord. Well, you can't say he's Lord without being submitted to that Lord, right? Jesus points that out. Why are you guys calling me Lord, Lord, but don't do what I say? I'm not the Lord unless you actually do what I say. So you can say it with your mouth, but I don't really know it. You don't really know it. Nobody really sees it unless there's a submission. And then you don't even need to say I'm Lord. <laughs> it's obvious I'm Lord by the fact that your heart is submitted. And this is what Martin Luther came to discover, is that faith always has works happening once you believe. 
Now, I am not saying we're saved by our works. Absolutely, that's heresy. It's right from the pit of hell. We're saved by grace through having faith in that grace. Number one, not of ourselves. It's not of a past character. It's not of a present character. It's not of a future character. It's not of a godliness that might happen in the future. You know, God saved you in a horrible place because he knows you're going to be, you know, hitting home runs in the future. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. None of those things are in God's mind. We're saved, not of ourselves, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But how do we then put it together? The work of faith. Now, when Paul talks about works, not of works, he really is talking about the law. Now, they dealt with the Old Testament law, but often there's New Testament churches that create their own laws. I, I grew up in a denomination and we had a manual and man, it, you, there was a list of things that you could not be a member unless you agreed to all of these things. And if you ever did them, you're going to lose your membership. You know, one, uh, we never went to movies. We, of course, once it came out on TV, that was okay. We did not dance, okay, because you, you know, you know how bad that can be. <laughs> and then we didn't go to circuses either. And I'll have to admit to you, circuses are weird. I, I just, I hate circuses. I tried taking my kids one time to a circus, and I just like, let's get out of here. I remember as a kid going and being weirded out. Now, I just say my parents were on the board of the church, and they broke every one of those on a regular basis, but quietly, secretly. So, works. But Paul was thinking about the Old Testament law, trying to keep the 613 laws of the Old Testament. And by keeping them, like the Pharisees thought they were them. Jesus pointed out, no, because God says not just keeping them in action, but keeping them in your heart as well. So in your heart, you may not say it, you may not act on it, but you're thinking, I hate your guts, then that's murder. So you did break the law in your heart. So Paul says it to clarify very clearly in Galatians 2, verse 16. Knowing that a man Galatians 2.16. We're getting there. Kirk? Do you have that one, Kirk? You don't have that one for some reason. Okay. Galatians 2.16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So Paul talks about in chapter 3 of Romans how the law just shows us our sinful condition. You know, Adam and Eve had one law. Don't eat this piece of fruit. How many of you guys have slipped a grape in your mouth at the grocery store? Don't raise your hand, because it's probably all of you guys. Matter of fact, some of you, you should probably weigh before you go into the grocery store and weigh you again when you leave. And, but that's all it was, and they broke it. 
because that's our sinful condition. The more we're told not to do it, the more our flesh wants to do it. And so we are saved by faith. Or are we saved by works? The fact is we're saved by faith, but a faith that works. So really, when we say I receive Christ, I'm receiving him as Savior. I'm receiving him as my substitute. I'm receiving him as my Lord. And so each of those works should match that. Well, why do I need a Savior? Because in my heart... I have the work of repentance, if you would. That's really not a great way to explain it, but my heart's repentive over my sinful condition. That's why I see Jesus as my Savior. I'm not running my life very well. I, things I don't want to do, I do. Things I do want to do, I don't do. But yet I need a Lord to submit to, to guide my life. And so in essence, faith, will show that submission, that following of Christ. And this is what he saw in them, a work of faith. It's interesting, if you want to see this in real action, just read Hebrews 11. It's the hall of faith chapter. But not one of those guys can you say, oh yeah, he had faith and you see no action. (laughs) Every one of them either had a step of faith or a walk of faith. Like Moses' parents, by faith, took him and hid him in the Nile. Right? By faith, Abraham left the Ur of the Chaldees and went to a land that he did not know. And you can keep going through each chapter. You see, their faith The works match. It wasn't that the works saved them. It's that the works were evident where there was faith. And their faith couldn't be hidden because their works matched their heart of faith. So by my works, your works, are not an endeavor to find God's favor or to develop a righteous standing before God but they are an expression of our appreciation for all the goodness God has bestowed upon us. So if you're saying, man, I don't want God to blackmail me, so I will do this work, read my Bible, pray, go to church, whatever it is, then you are walking by works and you need to stop it because that grieves the heart of God. But if you Say, man, the Lord saved me, took all my sins away, given me the gift of eternal life. Right, John 3, 16? God loves us. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, number one, but have everlasting life, number two. So that's, oh, so now, thank you, Lord, that I'm not perishing because I deserve to go to the hottest part of hell I am that big of a sinner. But at the same time, I'm going to go to heaven with some of the most awesome people that have ever lived on this earth. I'm not worthy of that, but I know it's a gift of God, right? It's not of ourself. It's not of works. It's a gift of God. 
And so my heart is soaring with thankfulness and appreciation. And so it's just a natural response. So Paul and James, they, they discover that. So one says, we're, we're saved apart from works, but yet, on the other hand, Paul points out, like James does, that you can see in the life of a person that their faith is evident by their works. That's exactly what James says in James 2.14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him, a faith without works? James 2.17 and 18. Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So true faith is manifested in that. Paul describes the same thing in his own life. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, For by grace of God I am what I am, and the grace towards me was not in vain, but what? I labor more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. So he says, man, it was just the grace. I labored more than all, but it wasn't me. It was an overwhelming grace of God that comes by that work of faith, walking in faith. So the very declaration that Jesus is Lord of my life implies my submission to his will. This submission in and of itself is a work, sort of, in obeying his commands, but it's actually just a natural outflow of that, right? He commands us, for example, to deny ourselves, take up a cross, and follow him. He commands us to go in all the world and preach the gospel. All of these, which I joyfully do, none of them will take away my salvation. None of them will assure my salvation. It has nothing to do with salvation. But yet, once I believe in the Lord, the Holy Spirit comes into my life. There should begin that process. Just like Paul said, the grace of God takes over and we find ourselves seeking the Lord, following the Lord, obeying the Lord joyfully, wonderfully. Important note of clarification and doing those things that are not works to seek to be righteous before God. I'm not doing the works to get saved or to secure my salvation. No way. It's by faith alone. But they are a joyful and willing obedience of faith that produces the work of faith. So Paul's labor was not to endeavor to obtain righteous standing before God or to earn his favor. It was simply his response of, to the grace of God that was bestowed upon him. The real true life of faith is when we are able to live it out in such a way that others can see it. Our faith should be a work of faith. Amen? Well, number two. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, then he says the next thing after a work of faith is the labor of love. Now, we just looked at the word a minute ago, ergon, for work. But this word in the Greek is kopos, K-O-P-O-S, which is much more strenuous. A matter of fact, it employs, it implies to, uh, toil that is strenuous and a sweat producing labor. 
So we're not surprised like that, right? So there's a work, ergon, which is still a labor, a toil. But then when it comes to loving people, it's a really strenuous, sweaty business. Anybody tried to love somebody else? Yeah, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yes, it, it, it is hard to love the stinky humans around us, right? What did J. Vernon McGee used to say, that old poem that probably comes from the 1700s? You know, to live above with the saints of love, that will be glory. To live below with the saints I know, that's another story. And uh, if you, you have relationships, you have friendships that you've had for a long time, if you've had a marriage that has stayed together, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And God tests us. He takes us all through the dark night of the soul, whether it's us individually or us as a marriage or us with our children or us with our moral issues of our life or our financial issues of our life. We, we all will struggle and go into a deep valley. And of course, David said in Psalm 23, the Lord's in that valley. He's right there with us. But we go through that valley and there's, it's wonderful, you know. It, it, it's like getting married, it's easy, right? <laughs> Being on your honeymoon, it's not so hard. It's after that, <laughs> that the marriage starts, right? And it, it does get harder. And there's times you go through it where you're like, I can't stand whoever, my spouse, my kids, my parents, my church, my friends, my job. Ah! And it's in that time that we have to have faith in the Lord, trust in the Lord, seek the Lord, and God give us that grace. But yet we pursue it by faith, that labor, that strenuous, difficult labor of love. And of course, the Bible speaks that love is to be our motivation. I think of that story with Jacob. Remember when he said to Laban, his father-in-law, oh, I don't have any money, but I'll work seven years for Rachel. And what does it say in Genesis? That those seven years seemed but a day because of the love that he had for her. So the time didn't seem to be an issue. The hard work didn't seem to be an issue because the love was greater than the labor. And so our work for the Lord must be motivated by love. 1 Corinthians 13, you guys know this well, right? In those first three verses, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I become a sounding brass, a clanging cymbal. Have you ever had anybody crash in your ear. Have you seen those on there where the guy gets the cymbals, the dad's taking the nap and the high school kid, you know, that's what it's like to God. Or get a trumpet and blow it in somebody's face while they're napping. Yes, that's what it's like. And though I have the gift of prophecy, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Wow. I have nothing and I am nothing. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned. You're in the mission field and the jungles of New Guinea and they burn you at the stake for sharing Jesus with them. 
but have not love, it profits me nothing. Wow. God doesn't want you to, "Ah, I got to go to church because God makes me. I hate going to, you know, I got to read the Bible because God makes me. I got to seek God in prayer because God makes me. This religion stuff is just wearing me out. God doesn't want it. God doesn't want it. He doesn't need it. But yet there's that point where you give it joyfully, willingly. And it's a beautiful thing. And so we must be motivated by love. Peter was commissioned by Jesus at the very end of the Gospel of John. You remember that. Peter, do you love me? What, how is he going to love the Lord? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Tend my lambs. If you love me, then labor. Going out through the world and feeding those who come to Christ. Go out and tend the lambs that are coming to Jesus and to the cross of Christ to be saved. If you love me, show me in your labor for the body of Christ, for Peter, who was called as a pastor and apostle. There's a great song, an old hymn by Assembly God pastor, Iris Stanfill. And uh, it's a great song because it's the whole point of this hymn, this modern day hymn, was to, to point out how we often think we're, you know, sacrificing so much for the Lord. And it's really not taken into consideration that Jesus, who was rich, became poor, that we might become rich, as 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says. But in the second verse, he says this, and I took this from Chuck Smith's sermon years ago. It affected me. hope it affects you. So the person saying in this hymn, I work so hard for Jesus. I often boast and say, I've sacrificed a lot of things to walk that narrow way. I gave up fame and fortune. I'm worth a lot, you know. But then I hear him gently say to me, I left the throne of glory and counted it all but lost. My hands were nailed in anger upon a cruel cross. And now we'll make the journey with your hands safe in mind. So lift your cross and follow close behind. So again, it was a a thing of of saying, when we realize what Christ has done for us, nothing we can do can match him leaving glory in heaven and coming to earth into human flesh and being our sacrifice. So love is to be the motive, the goal. And once you have it, don't let it go. The cares of this life, the deceitful of riches, the desires for everything can just come in and just work and work and work to stress us out. And um, we get our eyes on making our time with the Lord and seeking the Lord, just a labor that we do. You guys know that story in Revelation 2 to the church of Ephesus where he says, man, I know your works. I know your labors, your patience. You cannot bear those who are evil. You've tested those who say they're apostles and they're not. 
You found them liars. You persevered and had patience. You labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. So wow, these guys are diligent guys when it comes to doctrine and rooting out false doctrine. But nevertheless, I have this against you that you left your first love. So somewhere along the process of being these doctrinally correct church and, and being these apologists and, and debating theology and, and doctrine, somewhere along the line, it all became this academic exercise. It became this, this religion of work and debate and study But when it came to worshiping me, having just a simple heart, unless you're converted and become as a child, and just worship me. I know years ago, I was at a pastor's conference and a number of guys were speaking. And, and, you know, one time, first 20 years ago at a pastor's conference, it was really great. I mean, I'd learn a lot and get a lot of insights. But then there was a, a point where it's like, I am not really hearing anything that's really helping me grow. And I talked to an older pastor who goes to a lot of pastor conferences, spoke at them. And he, and he said, yep, yep, I remember getting there. There's a point where you just have to be converted again and become a child and just say, Lord, you know, feed me. Let the waters flow into my heart again. And then to just be happy, you know, if the, People that are speaking or sharing their hearts, you know, it, it, it just be glad for them that they've, they've come to this growth in, in the Lord and, and rejoice with them. And so in the same way, I, I think that somewhere along the line, the Ephesus church, they left something they had, something they knew well, this tender, sweet spirit of just loving Jesus. And he says to them in Revelation 2, Remember from where you've fallen, go back and recover that time. Repent and then do, repeat. I like that. Remember, repent, and repeat. Even though it's not in the Bible, it works well. And, uh, but it says, remember, repeat, and do the first works. Or else I come quickly and remove the lampstand from its place unless you repent. So the Lord says, I, I don't want a church who's academically and doctrinally just amazing without love. Without love, I don't want a church at all. Wow, powerful statement. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 makes it clear how it ought to be. For the love of Christ compels us. Thus we judge thus, if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but him who died for them and rose again. Just let the love of Christ compel you. Just a love for him, drag you into prayer, drag you into the word, drag you into fellowship, cause your heart to worship and to live in joyfully serving him. Years ago, there was an advice columnist and a lady wrote him saying, my husband's a bum. And I'm sick of him, and I'm going to divorce him. What advice do you have? And the advice columnist wrote her back and said, that's the problem with these guys. They're bums. They don't understand when they got a good thing. 
So get the divorce papers ready. But first, spend three weeks grinding his nose in it. I want you to wake up every morning and get dressed and ready, cook him breakfast, have the newspaper right next to the breakfast mill, and sit there with a smile on your face, and you eat breakfast or drink some coffee. And then as he's heading out the door, say, honey, I love you. Have a great day. Do that every morning, every night. Be ready when he comes home. Have an immaculate meal ready, just like he loves. And make sure that you're looking beautiful. And do this for three weeks solid. And then on the final night, take those divorce papers and put them down in front of him. So he knows all that he's going to miss. And he asked her to call him at the end of that time to let it know how it goes, or he would call her. Well, she didn't call him, but he called her and he said, hey, so how did it go? Did you divorce that bum? Don't call my husband a bum. He's the most wonderful man in the world. It didn't even take three weeks. The time she began to labor in her love, then the relationship began to blossom again and her heart began to change. In the same way with the church of Ephesus, the moment he begins to say, okay, intellectually, I I can debate anybody on any doctrine, but I want to be that Christian that I was at the beginning who used to get up early and just seek the Lord and pray and read the Bible and God speaks to my heart and I wouldn't talk to people about doctrine. I'd just talk to people what Jesus spoke to my heart. And man, that's the sweetest place to be. Thirdly and finally, not only the work of faith, the labor of love, but the patience of hope. And again, this word in the Greek, hypomone, it's, it's an enduring patience and a continuous patience. It's, it's a perseverance, a steadfastness. I think the best way to translate it is a long-suffering endurance in hope. Now understand, when you read in the New Testament the word hope, it is not our English word. Our English word has a sense of maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't happen. I hope it does. I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. That's the way we use that word. The Greek, no. The Greek is an absolute certainty it's going to happen. But the waiting until it does happen, it's a confidence, it's a certainty. And it it causes me to be able to endure all the difficulty I'm going through now because that day for certainty is coming. And this is what happens when you have faith and you're confident that God's word is true and what he says is true, no matter what difficulty you're going through in the moment, your heart is full of ease and comfort and joy. So in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God our Father. So where do we have this hope? In our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God our Father. What does the New Testament teach us? 
It says that we are living right now in hope of the immediate return of Christ. The rapture is going to be any day. This is also the fact that we have patience through all the difficulty. I, I, I talk almost daily to people that are just so discouraged about how wicked and bizarre and illogical how crazy it is that the things they're saying don't don't say when you have a child born if it's male or female you got to let it decide on its own just put an x down that's the question now and don't raise them as a male or a female they asked our new supreme court judge so What's the definition of a woman? I'm not a biologist. I can't say that. I can't say. Well, let me ask you this. Can only women have babies? No. And a matter of fact, it angers me you asking that question because your, your transphobic attitude is causing people to die. Asking if women, only women can have babies is causing people to die? Are you kidding? This is our new Supreme Court judge. Yes, men... There are women that have babies. There are men that have babies. There are uh, men that become women who can have babies. And it was just insane. And it's like, wow, I knew the last days were going to be evil. I know we don't get a lot of information about how wicked Sodom and Gomorrah was. But we're starting to get an idea. <laughs> it was nice to romanticize it. I can remember 40 years ago preaching. One day, our society will become a homosexual dominated society like it was in Sodom and Gomorrah, like it was in Rome and the Roman Empire. And, and people would just say, you're nuts. I, I had people literally come up to me and say, if you're going to talk about homosexuality, let me know because twice my wife had to get up and go to the bathroom because she was sick because you even mentioned the word homosexual. It's just too brash to even talk about it in church. That was the problem I had. And it was only a few years later that if you said anything bad about it, then you've got a bunch of people that are going to you know, leave the church over that. It, it, it's, it's insane. It's, it's grievous. And I have people that are looking at such a wonderful country that our forefathers gave us and is being deteriorated. 40 years ago, I also preached, guys, we're minimized. America right now, when it rolls on its side in bed, the whole world wakes up. <laughs> we roll back the other side, the whole world's moved. In the last days, we're not even mentioned. So at some point, we're minimized. Now, I, I hope we're great until the rapture comes and we're minimized because so many Americans are Christians and they're all going to heaven. And so that's why we're minimized. That'd be great. But I also didn't think that was necessarily going to be the case. It was just more of foolishness and foolish people dragging our country down until, you know, it's no more than important than, you know, the Dominican Republic or Costa Rica or something where we exist, but we're not an issue. And this is exactly what we're seeing. But our hope's in the Lord. Yes, as things get more third world, world-ish, it's going to be harder on our flesh. It's okay. We have hope, right? 
We have an absolute hope that we're going to be at. This is not our heaven. For people that aren't going to heaven, this is as close as they're ever getting to heaven. I understand why they're so upset. And America sort of has been a heaven. It's like, I, you know, live here longer. It's sort of heaven. If I die and go to heaven, I go to heaven. You know, sort of, I got heaven either way living in America as we compare it to the rest of the world. And we've known that. And now we're like the rest of the world. (laughs) It's okay. Your creature comforts are gone. Your ability to get medical help like you once had it is going to be gone. The fact that we have to start meeting in secret (laughs) and we've got to hide our Bibles under some loose boards in the floorboard of our house. You know, whatever it is we got to do, it's millions, literally billions of Christians have done that throughout history before the iron curtain, the bamboo curtain, heading back that way. It's okay if we end up being the Christians, end up being the Jews in America, and we have to suffer. It doesn't matter, guys. Our hope's in Jesus and heaven, not our creature comforts. James says it best in James 5, verse 7 and 8. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of our Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth? Waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do you see that? Wait patiently. Establish your hearts. Get your your hopes set. What did say we learn in Philippians? Get your mind on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. In Romans 8, 24 and 25, Paul says it here. Notice in these two little verses, the word hope is mentioned five times. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope? And what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. We're saved in that hope. I was just reading on the, the, the martyr, Christian martyrs worldwide, current issues. And there was one in Iran I don't know what you know, but there are hundreds of Christians who openly meet, but they're constantly killed and churches are blown up and their pastors are, are often imprisoned and tortured and then hung high uh, in the town while their body rots. But they, they don't back down. But they were, in particular, it was one young man who, His family was very Muslim, and a matter of fact, some of his family were leaders in various Muslim movements of of Iran. And and anyway, he ended up meeting a guy at at college, and he led him to the Lord. And he comes to church one Sunday and, and gives his testimony. And that week, his family took him and brutalized him and killed him. Again, what do you do as a church if something like that happens? Do you say, 
Ah, I'll quit going to church. It's, the cost is too high. This is too dangerous. This is too scary. I'll love the Lord secretly. Well, again, our hope has always been heaven. Our hope has always been with the Lord. So once you see it and have experienced it, there's no longer a need for hope. So the whole point of hope, it's in the future. Once we're in heaven, we don't hope for heaven anymore, right? The whole point of hope is we don't have it, but waiting for it. Interesting, on the flip side of that coin, the whole chapter of 2 Peter 3 is talking to Christians who have lost their hope. There are some, he says, amongst you who are saying, you've always told us the Lord's coming again. And things have been the same since creation. And, and, and they basically poo-poo the idea of, of talking about the second coming of Christ. And he goes on to say that the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some count slackness, but the long-suffering towards us, willing that none should perish, that all should come to repentance. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it shall be burned up. But it's sad to see Christians who, in the midst of their waiting and waiting, once, once we get raptured, we don't hope anymore. The whole point of hope is it hasn't happened yet, but we have that enduring, long-suffering patience. We see David going through this in the Psalms. In Psalm 27, 14, wait on the Lord, be of good courage. He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say on the Lord. Psalm 42, 5, why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. David was in a very difficult spot. And he said, even though I am cast down, even though I'm in the valley of despair, I know the Lord's going to come through. Jeremiah, boy, he had it rough. From the very first day he was called to the ministry, he was beaten and imprisoned and disrespected. But in Lamentations 3.26, I love this. This is one of my favorite verses as in my teen years. It's good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. The next verse says, just put your face in the dust and wait for God to be your salvation. So we rejoice in hope. We have in hope. In Ephesians, or excuse me, in Hebrews, it tells us that in chapter 6, 12, it says that you also may imitate those who through faith and patience, a steadfast endurance and hope, inherit the promises. For example, Abraham had to patiently endure until he obtained the promise. You know, we look, we, we read in Genesis, it's just one chapter where he has no kids. The next chapter, he has Isaac. <laughs> okay, but he was 100 years old. <laughs> he had to wait for a half a century until his wife was ridiculously 90 years old. But he never lost hope that God said, you will have children through Sarah. Hebrews 12.1 says, let us run the race with endurance. And with that endurance, to set that the, the race that is set before us with endurance. 
Faith, hope, and love. The work of faith, the labor of love, the patience of hope. So let's conclude by asking the obvious questions. Are these qualities being manifested in my life? Right now, do I have the works of faith? If Paul was rejoicing in my life, my walk with the Lord, like he did the Thessalonians, would he say, Brian, I rejoice in your works of faith. I rejoice in your labor of love for the Lord. I rejoice in that enduring patience, no matter what comes your way, no matter how deep the valley, no matter how hard this season, you don't despair, you rejoice. You know the Lord's with you. My, his cup, your cup overflows even when you're in the worst of situations. What do people say about us as a church? Church of Thessalonica, but this is now the church here in Rossmore. What, what does it say about us? Do we have those works of faith, the labor of love, the patience of hope? Does it describe us as a fellowship in this way? Well, I certainly hope it does. And if not, let's pray that God does that thing in our life. Well, Lord, we thank you for your word today, and we thank you for causing us to rightly divide the word of truth, to drill down as the, it says that the word of God is a two-edged sword piercing right between the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So often, Lord, we, we just want to go through the motions like the church of Ephesus, but have no passion, have no love, have no desire, have no seeking in it. We just want to take all the emotion out and, 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 and just make it a duty that we discipline ourselves to walk through. Lord, please let us have a love. Please let us have a passion. When we sing, we sing so passionately in love with you. When we talk of you, our hearts burn. When we read the word, the Holy Spirit's falling upon us and baptizing us and strengthening us in it. And we just cannot keep our mouth shut, but go into all the world and tell them what Jesus spoke to me this morning. Heal us, Lord. We know the world is busy. The world is pounding the cares of this life, the desire for riches, just the desire for other things creeps in and, and keeps us so focused on the earth when you said to focus upon you at the right hand of the Father and just seek you first and all the earth stuff, what we're going to eat and drink and wear, fall into place as you desire. So Lord, right now, we ask you to search our hearts. See if there be any wicked way in us See if there be any compromising ways. See if there be any lack of works of faith, lack of a labor in love, a lack of enduring in hope. We want to be those people that rejoice in the Lord always and again rejoice. If you're here today and maybe it's online, maybe you'll hear this message in 10 years from now. But you have not, by faith and faith alone, put your trust in Christ. And right now, just say, Lord, it's me. This sermon was for me today. It's me, it's me, oh Lord. 
The faith, hope, and love is not in my heart. It's not in my life. It's not in my words. It's not in my thinking. It's not the way I am towards my family. It's not the way I am as a light and a salt to this lost world. It's me, Lord, that need these characteristics. We know it's not because of time, because the Thessalonians only had three weeks, and they already had it in their lives. Lord, please. Touch my heart by the power of your spirit and heal me. If you're willing, Lord, you can make me clean. If you're willing, Lord, you can heal my soul. If I cry out and say, Lord, please give me that first love that I so remember, that I so desire again. Do it again. Another first love season that would last until you come again. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.